Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When the National Park System was first established in 1916, the goal to conserve unimpaired seemed straightforward. But Robert Keiter, author of a new book, To Conserve Unimpaired, The Evolution of the National Park Idea, argues that parks have always served a variety of competing purposes, from wildlife protection and scientific discovery to tourism and commercial development. He says parks must be managed more effectively to meet increasing demands in the face of climate, environmental, and demographic changes. Robert Keiter argues that parks cannot be treated as special islands, but must be managed as critical cores of larger ecosystems. We're going to be talking about the National Park System, Evolution and Future on Access Utah today. Robert Keiter is the Wallace Stegner Professor of Law, University Distinguished Professor and Founding Director of the Wallace Stegner Center for Land, Resources, and Environment at the University of Utah. He joins me for the hour following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When the National Park System was first established in 1916, the goal to conserve unimpaired seemed straightforward. But Robert Keiter, author of a new book, To Conserve Unimpaired, The Evolution of the National Park Idea, argues that uh, parks have always served a variety of competing purposes, from wildlife protection and scientific discovery to tourism and commercial development. He says that parks must be managed more effectively to meet increasing demands in the face of climate, environmental, and demographic changes. Robert Keiter argues that parks cannot be treated as special islands, but must be managed as the critical cores of larger ecosystems. He says that only when the National Park Service works with surrounding areas can the parks meet critical habitat, large-scale connectivity, clean air and water needs, and also provide sanctuaries where people can experience nature. Robert Keiter is the Wallace Stegner Professor of Law, University Distinguished Professor and Founding Director of the Wallace Stegner uh, Center for Land, Resources, and Environment at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law, and he joins me for the hour. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for uh, joining us. I uh, should mention that there's a reception coming up on Thursday, an opportunity to hear Robert Keiter read. There'll be a, a reception, 6 p.m., a reading at 7 p.m. That's at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, and uh, an opportunity for you. Uh, and uh, you can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or by email, upraxis at gmail.com. I was noticing reading your uh, brief biography uh, that... Uh, not only are you a scholar of these issues, but a, an avid uh, consumer, you might say, of the national parks. You, uh, you you frequent travels. In fact, you live up Emigration Canyon. Uh, that's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife and I just returned from the Grand Canyon uh, just a couple of days ago uh, and had the pleasure of visiting it and uh, uh, seeing uh, an extraordinary array of uh, uh, tourists uh, there enjoying uh, the canyon. And uh, this stood out to me, this is, you know, parenthetically, you were a senior Fulbright scholar at the University of Kathmandu in Nepal. That must have been quite an experience. Uh, it was indeed. I had the opportunity while there to uh, study um, and visit a number of uh, national parks in uh, Nepal and uh, ultimately wrote an article about the evolution of uh, Nepal's national park system, which is a fascinating story in itself. Interesting. Maybe we'll draw some comparisons as we go along. And also there's some comparisons to, uh, to how Europe has, has treated their, their national lands. Uh, maybe we could uh, start with the, with the institution of the National Park System, 1916 National Park Organic Act. And this is, 
been famously called the best idea America ever had. Uh, indeed, uh, two people actually get credit for uh, that uh, phraseology. Uh, I initially encountered it uh, attributed to uh, uh, Lord James uh, Bryce, a British ambassador to the United States, uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and since then, uh, Wallace Stegner also has been attributed uh, as the uh, uh, author of that statement. Uh, it certainly captures an important dimension of the uh, national park idea, which uh, has, uh, which the United States really uh, 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 created and is, is widely given credit for uh, popularizing the concept of a national park. And you're right that this was noble impulse, an effort to redefine our relationship with the natural world, and also uh, acknowledging our responsibility to future generations. This is in bold contrast, at least at the time, to how Europe was it's quite elitist, wasn't it, uh, the way Europe was treating its uh, natural lands? Uh, that's, uh, that's true uh, indeed. Uh, Europe uh, basically set aside uh, uh, reserves, uh, but they were mostly uh, privately owned, uh, available to uh, the upper uh, crust of society, uh, private hunting uh, reserves and that sort of thing. Uh, the idea that uh, we would set aside a large block of land and, and one, to preserve it uh, in basically its uh, natural condition, and then secondly, to make it uh, widely available to the public was not something that was going on in uh, uh, Europe uh, back uh, over a century ago. And so uh, there is this connection of uh, the public uh, in the United States uh, with parks, and that's the, one of the main ideas that's been picked up uh, internationally over uh, the last century. Yeah, it's, it's, it's become like, it's famously associated with America and, and a lot of overseas uh, tourism. You're right that uh, the parks are largely defined by the controversies that have shaped them, and, and th- these conflicts, competing uses for national parks, that's baked right into the what you might call the Constitution, the, the Organic Act, isn't it? What, what was some of the language there. Uh, well, the, the, one of the principal uh, uh, dichotomies that the framers of the Organic Act, which was written in 1916, uh, wrote into it was uh, to uh, provide that the parks were available for the enjoyment of the people, but at the same time to say that they were to conserve the wildlife and historic and scenic objects uh, therein uh, for the benefit of future generations. So you had a built-in uh, conflict between uh, public use uh, and uh, conservation, and the Park Service uh, has uh, struggled with uh, exactly how to interpret that uh, responsibility and to implement it on the ground ever since. And this, you say this is not just one idea, the National Park idea. This is many competing ideas. Uh, indeed, it, uh, uh, when we we think about these uh, uh, special places that we've set aside that are are widely revered uh, in uh, our culture uh, and our heritage, uh, we think of you know basically sort of serene uh, places, uh, beautiful places, uh, uh, places where uh, people come to uh, enjoy nature, to be contemplative, uh, all of. Uh, those sorts of things, uh, and we think of them as uh, fully protected areas. Uh, But when we take a step back and take a look at uh, the evolution of uh, our national parks and the national park idea itself, we find that uh, uh, there's been plenty of controversy from the beginning, and it uh, continues today. It's uh, quite difficult for for the agency to meet that uh, uh, sort of dual uh, mandate that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, and at the same time uh, to address uh, issues and uh, uh, 
uh, problems that uh, actually arise from uh, outside of uh, park boundaries. I wonder if we could talk a bit about, and you split up the book into several of these competing uses. You start out with wilderness. and Wilderness is interesting and maybe a good good place to, to begin this because wilderness, I think, is a, a good place to take a look at the com- competition between our image of these places and the reality of them. Uh, yes. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, when you think of... Uh, Yellowstone in 1872, Glacier in 1910, and some of the early uh, national parks. You think of uh, 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 places where uh, nature reigns supreme, um, and uh, that that these uh, places were being set aside uh, largely as uh, uh, wilderness uh, enclaves at that point in time. Uh, but uh, uh, that changed uh, pretty quickly. Uh, the public was invited in uh, to these uh, special places. Uh, there was uh, also, I should note, uh, Native American presence in uh, most of our national parks uh, before uh, they were uh, so designated. Uh, and <clears throat> the uh, Park Service uh, proceeded pretty early on uh, to uh, develop uh, most of our national parks in order to uh, invite the public in and to serve them, building things like lodges and roads and other sorts of facilities to accommodate uh, tourists. Uh, and as a result, uh, in pretty short order, uh, these uh, uh, wilderness settings were transformed uh, into uh, what uh, are today uh, our modern national parks, which are a mix of sort of backcountry uh, wilderness-like uh, areas and uh, uh, more developed uh, settings. Uh, when you think of, for example, uh, the rim of the Grand Canyon uh, and the facilities that are available there, uh, cement walkway running almost the length of the uh, canyon rim, uh, and uh, the Old Faithful complex in uh, Yellowstone, uh, it's evident that uh, uh, we've uh, developed uh, these uh, wilderness settings in order to expose uh, uh, people to nature and to allow them to access it and uh, to enjoy uh, the parks. Uh, it's uh, probably yes, also worth noting that uh, when we think of wilderness back at the turn of the 20th century, uh, there was no such thing as uh, official wilderness. Uh, and that uh, didn't come into being until 1964 with the adoption of the Wilderness Act. Uh, and uh, since then, there have been a series of controversies uh, involving uh, individual national parks over whether or not uh, the uh, basically backcountry lands within these parks ought to be designated uh, official wilderness, which would essentially add an additional layer of legal protection to uh, those lands and resources. I was thinking as I was reading the book uh, that Utah is, is so blessed with with uh, you know proximity to these lands. Many of the national parks are within Utah's borders, and if they're not, uh, they're within uh, easy driving distance, and and therefore we're immersed right in the middle of uh, of these conflicts as well. It's, it's sort of in our blood. Um, and as one example, the the uh, the success from the point of view of wilderness advocates of the of Echo Park. That uh, sort of the impetus that led to the Wilderness Act in in important ways in 1965. That's you know that's a Utah controversy slash success. Uh, yes, the uh, Echo Park controversy, which involved a proposal to construct uh, a dam uh, back in the 1950s uh, in Echo Park Canyon, which was part of Dinosaur National Monument, uh, prompted uh, the 
basically the uh, uh, early formation of a series of conservation um, uh, groups uh, to oppose uh, that particular project. Uh, David Brower was uh, the young director of the uh, Sierra Club at the time. Uh, he led uh, the charge against uh, the Echo Park Dam uh, and uh, succeeded, uh, along with a number of other allies, in uh, convincing the federal government not uh, to build uh, that dam uh, within uh, the national park. Uh, there are other parts to that story in terms of the trade-off with the construction of the Glen Canyon Dam further downriver uh, that are uh, tied in with that, uh, but uh, many uh, historians have attributed the uh, emergence of the modern conservation environmental movement to that uh, particular controversy that uh, proved that uh, uh, the preservation and protection of uh, park areas, uh, uh, special uh, uh, natural areas, uh, could uh, surmount uh, this uh, sort of unrelenting move to uh, dam uh, most of the western rivers and uh, to the uh, sort of march of progress and a march of civilization to engineer uh, our entire natural world. And wilderness, it's a, it's a, it's a loaded word. Um, it, it gets to the very heart of some of these conflicts. So we, do, we all want to go and enjoy these places, but wilderness restricts it to, you know, to at least for some people in, in terms of what they want to do and, and are able to do. And, and so that's, uh, that's the very conflict that was at the beginning, right? Enjoyment versus conservation. Uh, yes, the, 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 that is something that uh, uh, the uh, National Park Service has, uh, has wrestled with uh, from the outset, uh, just uh, how much uh, to, uh, to make available uh, the parks uh, and uh, the backcountry um, and uh, other areas within the national parks, and uh, how much, uh, if you will, to uh, keep uh, hands off uh, of those areas. Uh, and it's reflected in, in terms both of the construction of uh, uh, roads, uh, lodges, other facilities within the parks uh, where uh, the wilderness ethic really has not prevailed, the so-called front country of uh, our parks, uh, and uh, is also reflected in uh, various policy decisions that have been made uh, over the past century uh, by the Park Service, and I probably should add by other uh, public land management uh, agencies, uh, such as a uh, decision back uh, again around the turn of the uh, 19th to, to the 20th century to uh, eliminate predators. Uh, and as a result, uh, uh, wolves uh, were uh, exterminated from Yellowstone National Park, for example, by uh, 1920, uh, mid-1920s. Uh, also, uh, again, roughly at the turn of the century, the decision to uh, eliminate or try to eliminate uh, wildfires, uh, which threatened uh, nearby communities and important resources such as uh, timberlands. And uh, that, of course, uh, was a uh, major change from, uh, if you will, sort of letting uh, nature take care of itself to uh, managing nature and would be inconsistent with uh, our basic uh, understanding of wilderness today, at least the concept of official wilderness. We're talking with Robert Kider on the program today. His new book is To Conserve Unimpaired, the Evolution of the National Park Idea. And uh, we're inviting you to join this uh, program. Uh, coming up following the break, 
We're going to be uh, talking about the post-World War II boom in tourism, what became to be known as industrial tourism. And some of those conflicts that that occasioned go on today. In fact, there's even some talk and an argument over uh, some areas of should we even cap visitation, which would seem to, to go to the very heart of uh, this idea of uh, uh, providing enjoyment for the American people. But uh, the other side of this is to conserve unimpaired. Robert Cotter says that uh, this mission to conserve unimpaired, uh, though it seems straightforward at the beginning, uh, of course, is very complicated. The National Park ideas, really many ideas, uh, these conflicts will go on into the future. He has some ideas about how we can uh, better manage uh, national parks, not as islands, but as interconnected with the surrounding lands. We're going to be talking about this more following the break, and we're asking you, what has your experience been in the national parks? What conflicts have you seen? Perhaps you are live in a gateway community. I'd love to get your perspective if you're in the Springdale or a Torrey um, or one of those areas. The number is 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com. More after the break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll head down under for music from Australia and New Zealand. You come from a land down on love Women glow and men plunder I'm Dan Storper And I'm Rosalie Howard Join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio Waste Not Install a rain sensor on your irrigation controller so your system won't run when it's raining. Also, install water-wise fixtures and appliances. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Robert Kiter. He's author of a new book, To Conserve Unimpaired, The Evolution of the National Park Idea. He says National Park Idea, famously has been called the best idea America ever had, is really several ideas and competing ideas. And in the original Organic Act, uh, Congress said that uh, these parks uh, should serve the public uh, for enjoyment. In fact, uh, one phrase early on in this idea, pleasuring grounds for the American people. The other idea is to conserve unimpaired, and uh, so those are some of the conflicts. We're asking you, what has your experience been in the national parks? What conflicts do you see? And uh, do you see a tension between protecting national park resources and accommodating increasing tourism? Perhaps you live in Moab or uh, Springdale or Torrey, one of the gateway areas. Uh, You're directly impacted, of course. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. What trends are you seeing? UPRAxis at gmail.com is our email, UPRAxis at gmail.com. You can reach us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, Robert Kiter will be giving a reading. There will be a reception as well. That is Thursday evening, 6 p.m. for the reception, 7 p.m. for the reading. That's at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And uh, Robert Kiter is Wallace Stegner Professor of Law, University Distinguished Professor and Founding Director of the Wallace Stegner Center for Land, Resources, and the Environment at the University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. 
so I'd like to talk about uh, tourism. And uh, this, of course, was uh, central to the early idea, uh, at least in many people's minds, of the national parks. Uh, those who promoted national parks wanted people to come and see. And uh, I wonder if you talk a bit about this explosion of tourism uh, post-World War II and, and, and the way it continues uh, today. Um, and maybe maybe we could talk about Yosemite Valley. This was some of this I didn't know. Um, it, early on, uh, it was promoted, and, and now it's in some ways being loved to death. Uh, that, that is a uh, common refrain you hear within uh, uh, the national parks uh, with the uh, ex- ex- extreme uh, uh, <clears throat> growth of uh, tourism over the years. Uh, going back to the uh, early days of the National Park Service, the uh, first director of the service was Stephen Mather. Uh, he came from a business uh, and marketing background. Uh, he was an executive with the Borax Corporation, a personal friend of uh, Franklin Lane, who was the Secretary of the Interior in 1916 when the uh, National Park uh, System was established and the Organic Act passed. And uh, he uh, responded to an entreaty, uh, that is, uh, Mather responded to an entreaty by Secretary Lane to uh, uh, come and be the first uh, director of the National Park System. And uh, one of the major ideas that he brought with him was that in order to safeguard uh, these new parks, that uh, it would be necessary to get people uh, out into them to experience them and to build a constituency that uh, would provide uh, the necessary uh, political support because, after all, the parks are designated by Congress uh, and uh, exist as uh, uh, basically uh, through legislative grace. So uh, Mather promoted uh, the parks. Uh, he recognized early on that uh, automobiles uh, were going to transform park visitation, changing it from uh, the railroads uh, that uh, had brought basically uh, wealthy uh, Easterners out west uh, in the 19th century into um, a tourism uh, experience uh, that would be available to uh, ultimately uh, uh, everyone, uh, certainly in the middle class and on up. Uh, with the advent of the automobile, and uh, early on he uh, uh, made alliances with uh, gateway communities, with automobile associations, and otherwise to encourage uh, automobile uh, tourism. He even famously toured the parks himself in uh, a roadster that bore the license plate uh, NPS-1, meaning uh, referring to uh, his role as the number one uh, leader in uh, the national park uh, system. And from there, uh, uh, the rest is history, so to speak. Uh, The automobile uh, brought people into the parks. Uh, Post-World War II, uh, visitation exploded as a result of a number of different uh, factors uh, to the point where today uh, we're pretty regularly uh, hitting uh, 280 uh, plus a million uh, annual visitors to the national parks. And uh, at least at one point, uh, the National Park Service was, uh, this is a quote from the book, uh, they were uh, trying to maintain or create the mood of wild America. It was an, ex- it was an experience. I guess in some ways it still is. Uh, trying to create there. Uh, yes, to, well, uh, to try to en- entice people to come uh, to visit uh, these places, um, 
Uh, and uh, the Park Service uh, uh, provided the facilities, uh, lodges early on for the railroad passengers, ultimately uh, uh, campgrounds uh, uh, designed uh, to accommodate uh, automobiles uh, and uh, later uh, larger uh, recreational vehicles. Uh, and uh, the automobile really sort of democratized uh, the uh, National Park experience, uh, and uh, Mather recognized that, uh, and again encouraged people to come. And uh, in the aftermath of World War II, uh, with a, a number of different factors uh, ranging from uh, the establishment of the interstate highway system, uh, economic affluence, the growth of the middle class, um, lightweight camping uh, equipment. Uh, uh, all of those uh, things uh, uh, attributed to uh, more and more uh, park visitation. The parks were brought, uh, in essence, uh, closer to the people. Now, in places like Yosemite Valley, which is breathtakingly beautiful, but a fairly narrow valley, um, there has been talk, hasn't been implemented, hasn't been approved, of, of should we cap visitation in some places like this? Uh, I, I imagine, you know, Zion National Park would, would, would have some of the, this impetus, capping visitation. Uh, it, it, which is, uh, in and of itself, uh, quite a controversial uh, idea uh, in the national parks, and hence uh, uh, the Park Service has generally stayed away from uh, the notion of any sort of cap or limitation on uh, daily visitation. Uh, however, uh, the um, uh, problem as uh, industrial tourism set in, to borrow uh, the phrase from uh, the writer Edward Abbey, um, uh, and, and the onslaught of visitors occurred, especially in particularly scenic areas like uh, uh, Yosemite Valley. Uh, you saw uh, a number of things happening. One was uh, increased environmental degradation of the resource uh, itself just by the simple presence of so many uh, people and automobiles and fumes and noise and all of those sorts of things, uh, and uh, a degradation of the visitor experience. Uh, any idea that uh, Yosemite Valley was uh, a wilderness setting, to go back to the earlier point that we were talking about, uh, uh, disappeared uh, pretty much uh, entirely by uh, even the 1920s. I found uh, regular uh, 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 quotations or diary entries or uh, public statements about how bad uh, the air was befouled uh, in the valley by uh, the 1920s with the onslaught of visitors. Um, that said, uh, the Park Service has, has worked uh, uh, hard over the years to try to figure out ways to accommodate the visitors while addressing both environmental degradation and uh, uh, visitor um, experience, and uh, short of uh, imposing uh, limitations. Um, and it's uh, it's unclear whether or not uh, it will succeed uh, in uh, doing that, uh, particularly in the Yosemite Valley, where there's been an ongoing controversy for 25, 30 years now over automobile access in particular uh, into that uh, area. Uh, noting that the Park Service has generally been reluctant to impose limitations, it's, it's probably worth noting that uh, there are instances where uh, limits have been imposed. Backcountry use permits, for example, are uh, limited uh, in the national parks, and one in, in many parks has to get uh, a, a backcountry uh, camping permit before hiking uh, there and camping uh, in those uh, areas. 
uh, in Denali National Park, uh, access is limited to a single roadway that runs from the main uh, north-south highway uh, at the park entrance uh, 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 to uh, ultimately to an area known as uh, Wonder Lake, uh, roughly 75 miles into the interior of the park. Uh, and uh, there are only a certain number of buses that uh, run over the course uh, of a day. Uh, automobiles are generally excluded from that uh, particular area. And, of course, we have the uh, shuttle bus system that is seasonally in place in uh, Zion National Park. Uh, not a limitation on visitation, but a limitation on uh, automobile access. And uh, those sorts of uh, uh, solutions are being tried uh, other places, and uh, the Park Service is... Uh, 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 proposing uh, different ways to uh, uh, limit uh, auto access into uh, the Yosemite Valley area. And I suppose if, uh, and on some days, you know, I've been in, in national parks on some days where it's sort of standing room only in, in, in some areas, uh, but, you know, how to solve that, uh, you know, I could ask the person on my left and right to not come, but uh, that, that that wouldn't be fair. Uh, and, and, and money flows, doesn't it, to, to visitation numbers? At least that's how Congress sees it. Uh, yes, uh, in terms of appropriations to the uh, Park Service by Congress, uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, Congress tends to look at visitation numbers uh, and to appropriate accordingly. Uh, and hence, there's a built-in incentive for uh, the Park Service to uh, make sure that uh, uh, these parks are available and accessible. And then it's uh, also, I think, important to note, uh, and, and you alluded to this earlier, that the parks are connected to uh, the surrounding communities uh, and to uh, the private concessioners uh, who uh, provide uh, facilities and services for visitors within the parks. And uh, uh, those uh, uh, folks uh, uh, are, are driven uh, uh, not necessarily by the park experience or environmental considerations, but uh, by the marketplace. Uh, and uh, so there's a, an incentive uh, to get more people uh, there uh, to make uh, more money. Uh, and to the extent that the Park Service, for example, might contemplate uh, limitations on visitation, uh, they often hear from the local Congress uh, person uh, or congressional delegation uh, when that's proposed uh, who've been approached by local merchants who uh, have concerns about uh, any uh, uh, proposed limitations. Yeah, that's an interesting point. These gateway communities, of which there are many in, uh, in Utah, uh, there, there's the interests of these communities are not necessarily aligned with the interests of the park. Uh, it's seasonal, as you say, and if you run a business in those areas, you want to boost the numbers of people coming through during the season to, to make a profit. Uh, on the other hand, uh, some of these national parks owe their existence to the, to the, to the adjacent communities, don't they? Well, in, in some instances, uh, indeed, the uh, uh, adjacent uh, uh, communities have been instrumental, for example, in uh, uh, the creation of some of the of the parks. Um, and uh, uh, so there's a uh, it's a complex relationship. There's no no simple way to uh, characterize it. And, uh, of course, the uh, uh, communities themselves uh, are uh, different and have. Uh, different types of uh, relationships with uh, the parks. I highlight a few uh, in the book. Um, 
uh, one area that uh, sort of uh, stands out and is often uh, discussed uh, as a uh, potentially problematic uh, relationship between uh, the National Park and the uh, Gateway community is back east in, uh, on the western side of uh, Great Smokies National Park. Great Smoky Mountains National Park, I should say, uh, where uh, the town of Gatlinburg has uh, uh, become a real uh, commercial uh, entity uh, uh, fueled by the presence of the National Park, but also uh, promoting uh, its own uh, type of uh, entertainment uh, and uh, has grown uh, extraordinarily. Um, and it sits right next to uh, the park. Uh, its growth has fragmented uh, wildlife uh, uh, corridors and uh, uh, migration opportunities, uh, and uh, uh, its appearance in, in the view of many uh, people uh, detracts from uh, the basic national park uh, uh, experience. So uh, you have, a, uh, as I noted, you've got a variety of different types of uh, relationships between uh, these gateway communities and the parks. What's the trend lately, do you think? Uh, you write in the book, they, you know, outline this problem we've been talking about, that the gateway community's interests not necessarily aligned with conservation. Uh, getting numbers of visitors in is, is their interest. On the other hand, National Park Service, you write, has sometimes not been the best of neighbors to these uh, communities and hasn't engaged. What, what do you see as a, as a trend? Well, I think there's a, <clears throat> you're right, it's a two-way street. Uh, certainly uh, what happens in the communities uh, impacts uh, what happens in the parks. Uh, both in terms of resource management, uh, visitor management, etc., and what happens in the parks uh, has an impact in the uh, communities. Uh, when the Park Service, for example, uh, allows uh, uh, wildfires uh, to burn uh, unchecked, uh, uh, there's a potential threat to um, adjacent landowners and uh, communities. Uh, when uh, the Park Service reintroduces wolves into Yellowstone, for example, that has impacts outside uh, uh, Park Service uh, boundaries. So <clears throat> what I think is uh, is happening uh, over time is a broader recognition at, at on both sides, if you will, uh, that uh, uh, parks, gateway communities, adjacent uh, landowners, uh, adjacent federal land uh, uh, management agencies are inherently uh, connected uh, together, uh, both economically, um, as we've recognized early on, uh, and uh, now recognize that uh, there are ecological connections between these uh, uh, the parks and the communities, and that uh, uh, the parks in uh, uh, many cases are sort of the goose that lays the golden egg for many of the gateway uh, communities uh, and a growing recognition that uh, we want to be sure to uh, maintain the integrity of the parks. We're talking with Robert Kiter on Access Utah today. He is the founding director of the Wallace Stegner Center for Land Resources and Environment. He's also Wallace Stegner Professor of Law, University Distinguished Professor at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. And he's author of a new book, uh, he's the author of several books. His new book is to, to Conserve Unimpaired, the Evolution of the National Park Idea. He says the National Park Idea is really several competing ideas. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about recreation. Of course, there are recreation conflict points that we know about uh, very well in Utah. And we'll talk about uh, this idea of uh, national parks as sort of the... Uh, a critical core of uh, ecosystems and the idea of connectedness. This uh, Professor Kider sees as uh, a way we can uh, meet the challenges of the future. 
And we're inviting you to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Robert Kider will read and discuss To Conserve Unimpaired at a uh, reception and reading at the King's English Bookshop. That's in Salt Lake City. And the reading's at 7 p.m., reception preceding that at 6 p.m. More following break. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to the next Wood Songs broadcast. It's all about using music in your community. We have Ken Waldman from Alaska, the great songwriter Cy Khan, and Grammy Award winner Tom Chapin. If it's the last trip home, this could be the last trip home. It's music and conversation on the next broadcast of the Wood Songs, Old Time Radio The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Sticking to a regular exercise schedule isn't easy. After all, there are plenty of potential hindrances, time, boredom, injuries, and self-confidence. But these issues don't need to stand in your way. Consider practical strategies for overcoming common barriers to fitness. Squeeze in short walks throughout the day. If you don't have time for a full workout, don't sweat it. Shorter spurts of exercise, such as 10 minutes of walking spaced throughout the day, offer benefits too. Choose activities you enjoy. You'll be more likely to stay interested. Remember, anything that gets you moving counts. Exercise with friends, relatives, neighbors, or coworkers. You'll enjoy the camaraderie and the encouragement of the group. Schedule exercise as you would schedule an important appointment. Block off times for physical activity and make sure your friends and family are aware of your commitment. Whatever you decide to do, stick with it and remember why you're doing it. Your heart will thank you. This is Dana for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Robert Kiter, author of a new book, To Conserve Unimpaired, the Evolution of the National Park Idea. Robert Kiter is the Wallace Stegner Professor of Law, University Distinguished Professor, and Founding Director of the Wallace Stegner Center for Land, Resources, and the Environment at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. And we're inviting you to join this conversation. Uh, what's your experience been in the national parks or perhaps gateway communities? What conflicts are you seeing? What's the trend? We're very interested to get your experience. The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email at upraxcess at gmail.com. Robert Kiter will read from and discuss his book, To Conserve Unimpaired, at a reception and reading at the King's English Bookshop. That's Thursday evening at 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City. Reception at 6 p.m., reading at 7 p.m. Robert Kiter, um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about uh, recreation. Uh, this gets us into this idea, early idea, uh, of public lands as a pleasuring grounds. And uh, But not all forms of recreation are created equal. In fact, the National Park Service, um, sometimes it seems, you know, sometimes... <laughs> I don't know, the word is capriciously, randomly, at least that would be the, the view from the points, uh, point of view of the people whose recreation activity is outlawed. Um, but, but even irrespective of uh, harm to the land, they're saying some forms of recreation are okay, other forms are not. Uh, yeah, yes, the Park Service uh, uh, has uh, uh, perhaps uh, called uh, the question of appropriate recreation uh, uh, within uh, the national parks uh, closer than uh, other uh, federal land management agencies. It's been driven uh, in large part by <clears throat> the conserve unimpaired um, mandate uh, that the agency operates under. Uh, I should note that uh, when <clears throat> confronted with uh, the, the 
uh, alleged uh, dual mandate of uh, public enjoyment and conservation. Uh, from the beginning, uh, the Park Service took the position that uh, the obligation to conserve uh, its resources took precedence over uh, public access and use and recreation. Uh, the courts have confirmed uh, that basic uh, hierarchy um, over time, uh, and the agency uh, now explicitly uh, writes uh, that hierarchy into its uh, management policies, which is a guiding document for uh, oversight of um, uh, the parks and activities occurring within them. The principal controversies, at least in recent years, that have uh, arisen uh, involve uh, uh, principally uh, a motorized type of access into the national parks. Uh, here, think the uh, yeah, uh, snowmobiling controversy in Yellowstone National Park that has garnered uh, so much attention for more than 20 years now. Uh, we also, here in Utah, have an ongoing controversy uh, regarding uh, ORV access uh, along Salt Creek uh, in uh, Canyonlands National Park, uh, where the Park Service, uh, in the latter case, uh, the Canyonlands case, has ultimately concluded that uh, uh, the environmental uh, damage uh, would be uh, uh, too substantial uh, to allow continued uh, ORV access up to uh, a popular uh, arch uh, that uh, had previously been available by um, ORV access. And, and this in, in closing that uh, it, it has generated uh, litigation that continues yet today. And this, of course, not only in national parks, but in all public lands uh, in, in the West, Utah in particular, has is, is become very heated some, sometimes. these uh, becomes very political. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk about uh, some of the newer forms of recreation. The National Park Service, I think, has been stricter on uh, things like base jumping than, uh, say, BLM. Uh, yes, uh, that that is true, and uh, the agency has wrestled with the question of uh, uh, how to address um, uh, more more modern or newer, as you put it, uh, types of recreation that don't necessarily involve uh, uh, motors, uh, but are uh, sort of thrill-seeking in nature. Uh, base jumping would be one example of that. Um, one might include uh, uh, mountain biking to some degree, um, uh, whitewater uh, kayaking, uh, etc., uh, which is uh, permitted in some parks, not permitted in other parks. The basic questions that the Park Service has uh, uh, wrestled with is uh, what type of recreational activities are appropriate in the national park setting, taking into account things like uh, history and tradition uh, and uh, environmental damage and uh, the visitor experience. Uh, and in general, uh, the agency's been sensitive to things like uh, trying to provide a setting where uh, uh, solitude, uh, contemplative uh, connection with the natural environment, um, wilderness-like experiences, uh, self-sufficiency, uh, those uh, sorts of uh, values uh, have uh, uh, been uh, given uh, great credence in trying to resolve uh, questions of whether or not to allow a particular type of activity. I should also add as a lawyer that there are uh, liability issues that attach to uh, some of these activities. And it's uh, not always easy to square uh, the agency's decision perhaps to disallow something like uh, base jumping, uh, 
uh, while at the same time allowing uh, 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 tens to hundreds of people to uh, scale uh, sheer granite walls, uh, like uh, at El Capitan in uh, Yosemite Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, this has been brought into bold relief uh, lately in, in Utah with um, the, the, the latest craze, you might call it, of a swinging from, from arches and such. This has not been happening in national parks, but in, on you know surrounding lands. Yes. And, uh, and so there is a conflict. People want to do these these sort of adrenaline rush things, but uh, what should what should the park service do? What should they allow, and what should they, what should they not allow? And you're pointing out that they they allow some some of these types of activities, and not others. But not others, and and that the factors that I alluded to seem to be uh, the, the driving sort of. Uh uh, force for the decision that the park makes. This uh, provides an opportunity to make the point, that, and, and I make it in the book, that um, by recognizing that the national parks are uh, uh, connected to the surrounding landscape, uh, when we think of that in terms of uh, recreation and some of these recreational conflicts, I think uh, uh, there's a strong argument that uh, although the parks may not allow particular types of activities, uh, they may these types of activities may still be available on uh, surrounding lands, and that the agencies themselves, the federal uh, public land agencies in particular, would be well advised to uh, uh, coordinate uh, their recreational uh, uh, management and policies uh, in order to uh, attempt to address not solely in the national park setting, but in the broader landscape setting, uh, the diverse types of uh, recreational demands uh, that are being made today. I wonder if we could get into uh, some uh, looking at the future. And, and you talk about, at the end of your book, you talk about we're heading into a third age in the national park system. First one being scenery and visitation. Second one, we talked about this uh, increase in science. We haven't talked about that a lot in this industrial tourism but uh, now you and you advocate this uh, thinking about the national parks as being connected to surrounding public lands and I guess other lands as a vital core of, of the ecosystem. Explain what you're talking about there. Well, we we early on, and I think for for quite a bit of the history of the national parks, we thought of these places as special enclaves, um, uh, reserves that were set aside and would be managed, uh, you know, basically for nature preservation. Purposes, um, we've recognized uh, that uh, that's uh, uh, impossible today. That uh, the uh, world has closed in on the national parks, uh, where many of the western parks were in relatively isolated settings uh, 50 uh, years ago. Uh, that's no longer the case. You have extraordinary growth occurring, for example, in uh, the areas surrounding places like Yellowstone uh, and Glacier, um, and uh, some of our southern. Uh, Utah parks. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, uh, in order for these, uh, for the national parks to uh, continue to be able to conserve uh, nature in an unimpaired uh, condition, uh, or relatively unimpaired today, given the in- influences of climate change, uh, we've uh, got to think of them as uh, parts of this larger landscape. We early on uh, recognized that they were, uh, uh, if you will, uh, anchor tenants uh, and uh, brought uh, economic benefit to uh, neighboring communities uh, and landowners. And uh, today I think we need to think of them uh, 
uh, and the Park Service is increasingly doing this, thinking of them as the vital core of uh, larger ecosystems. And as a result, uh, we need to uh, think about uh, policies that uh, address management uh, on that scale and to promote uh, more coordinated uh, planning, both with adjacent public land uh, managers and with uh, uh, private landowners and the communities that surround the parks, uh, if we're going to, in fact, uh, save uh, uh, and preserve these special places. And uh, I believe you say in the book that we should at least think about strategic park expansions. Uh, Yes, Uh, and uh, in fact, if you look at the history of the evolution of the national park uh, system, uh, you'll find that uh, uh, over time uh, there have been additions to many of the large uh, national parks uh, driven in, in large part by uh, recognition that uh, this uh, corner or that corner was essential to uh, safeguard uh, a a particular species, perhaps, uh, or uh, a watershed or something like that. Uh, And uh, going forward, uh, it makes sense to me that uh, uh, we would uh, continue to be sensitive to uh, those uh, opportunities, uh, again, in order to meet this uh, broader uh, conserve unimpaired uh, obligation that the uh, Park Service has. I'm interested, we made reference to this early in the program, very interested to uh, compare and contrast the evolution of the National Parks uh, idea and system in the U.S. to that of Nepal's. You've made a study of Nepal's park system. Uh, uh, yes, and uh, there, there are a number, there are some parallels and some uh, dissimilarities. Uh, one of the parallels that uh, uh, was evident there was a, uh, a recognition by uh, the national government in Nepal that uh, it needed if it was going to create uh, national parks, it needed to do it on a uh, large uh, scale. Uh, but at the same time, there were people living on the landscape in many of the, the sensitive um, and scenic uh, areas. Uh, and as a result, uh, people have been incorporated into uh, the national park concept in Nepal, uh, more so than here in the United States, where basically uh, people are uh, at least permanent inhabitants, are uh, kept out of uh, the national parks. Also, uh, Nepal's taken advantage of a sort of uh, a zoning uh, type of uh, approach and created core national park areas uh, surrounded by uh, conservation areas. Uh, so you have a sort of uh, uh, strict conservation in the core park area with uh, more moderate uh, type of conservation approaches uh, as uh, concentrically uh, you move uh, outward from that core area. Something like that, uh, it seems to me, makes sense uh, for uh, our national parks going forward. I don't know how widely you've, you know, you've studied other park systems or, you know, outside the United States, but I, I wonder if if the U.S. system is, is seen as, as a model or is it seen generally favorably? Uh, yes, it is. It is uh, widely seen as uh, you know the originator of the national park idea. Uh, that the types of uh, management approaches uh, taken uh, in the United States uh, are uh, emulated uh, uh, to one degree or another uh, in uh, other countries. Uh, but at the same time, especially in the developing world, uh, you've got the human presence. 
uh, within uh, national parks or uh, immediately adjacent to uh, these parks. And uh, you often see, a, if you will, a sort of greater accommodation of uh, uh, the human presence. And that, uh, uh, thinking about that uh, and uh, uh, social economic changes, uh, demographic changes within our own society, uh, led me to the conclusion, and others too, I should add, that uh, we need to be thinking about uh, national park type experiences uh, uh, closer to our urban areas, which are growing at a tremendous uh, rate uh, and where people don't have ready access to nature. So uh, trying to figure out ways to uh, provide a national park type experience uh, where people live, uh, think major metropolitan areas. Um, or in uh, proximity to those areas uh, would make sense going forward. What form would that take? How would that be accomplished? Well, we have uh, some examples of national recreation areas uh, uh, immediately adjacent to Los Angeles and New York City, for example. Um, Those uh, uh, types of uh, areas might be duplicated. Uh, You also could have uh, some uh, urban areas uh, that might have been degraded over time uh, being restored in order to provide uh, nature experiences for uh, the people living there uh, to ensure that uh, children uh, have outdoor experiences and aren't simply tied to the uh, uh, technological tools that uh, so dominate uh, uh, our culture today. Finally, just a minute left. Uh, I wonder if, in general, the, the experience that people want to have in the national parks, is that changing? Is that the same as it always was? Uh, it, it, there's there's change, and that's consistent with uh, the the theme of the book that the uh, national park idea itself has changed. And uh, uh, one of the um, uh, th- things that I see uh, happening in the future, or that needs to happen, is for the national park service itself to get more uh, engaged in a uh, combination of interpretation and education, and providing a civic education in nature conservation for. Uh, our society um, and uh, providing the types of uh, 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 services and opportunities that uh, uh, people seek uh, as uh, our uh, uh, society and, and culture changes. Our guest for the hour on Access Utah today has been Robert Kider. He's Wallace Stegner Professor of Law at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law, and he's author of a new book, To Conserve Unimpaired, The Evolution of the National Park Idea. He will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Thursday, 6 p.m. for a reception, reading at 7 p.m. And uh, we appreciate uh, Professor Kider being our guest uh, for the program today. Thank you so much. Well, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, you might also mention that the book uh, is published by uh, Island Press uh, and is available through the uh, uh, usual means uh, through the uh, Internet as well as uh, many local bookstores. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And uh, for uh, uh, producer Friend Weller, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.